Chapter 1. The Stages of Death Quote from the Upanishads, Hindu tradition. When a man knows God, he is free. His sorrows have an end, and birth and death are no more. When in inner union he is beyond the world of the body, then the third world, the world of the spirit, is found, where the power of the all is, and man has all, for he is one with the one. What happens during and after death? It is commonly said that we have no idea what happens after death because no one has ever returned to tell us about it. But this is not altogether true. Since the dawn of humanity, there have been those who have undergone a clinical death, the cessation of all vital life signs, and afterwards have been revived. According to recent studies, nearly 50% of such people remain lucid during these episodes and later report having had what today are called near-death experiences, NDEs. While the details of these experiences may vary according to an individual's temperament and beliefs, certain basic patterns and motifs recur with striking frequency. These include out-of-body experiences, traveling through mist-filled tunnels, seeing visions, having encounters with dead relatives or other disembodied beings, and perceiving an intense white or golden light. Another source of information about what happens after death comes to us from the world's great religious traditions. Virtually all of these traditions have attested to the continuity of consciousness beyond physical death and offered some description, usually in mythic terms, of what takes place in the afterlife. As is the case with near-death experiencers, NDEers, the specifics of these mythologies vary considerably from culture to culture. But also, as with NDEers, cross-cultural comparisons reveal underlying images and themes that are largely invariant from one tradition to another. Finally, we now have available in the West a growing body of literature from those spiritual traditions which have made a specialty of cultivating meditative techniques that actually mimic the dying process. Perhaps the most sophisticated of these is the Tantric Buddhist tradition of Tibet. For more than a thousand years, Tibetan Buddhists have been making increasingly refined observations of the mental states which occur during such stimulated death experiences. This is not the time or place to present a complete analysis of all the evidence concerning after-death states which can be gleaned from these various sources. Indeed, a truly comprehensive study of this subject has, to our knowledge, yet to be undertaken. However, enough is known to make one thing quite clear. The mystics of all traditions unanimously agree that death will offer you a golden opportunity for attaining that Gnostic awakening which has been the supreme goal of your spiritual quest. In the Tibetan tradition, for example, death is seen to unfold in a series of stages during which the various physical and mental constituents are absorbed into each other until finally there is nothing left in consciousness but an apparent void. This is the critical moment. If you can recognize that this void is actually the fundamental clear light, or in our terms, pure consciousness, then you will achieve full enlightenment. For, as Bokar Rinpoche explains, recognizing this fundamental clear light means becoming Buddha in the absolute body at the moment of death. 
The Hindu tradition gives a similar account of what happens during the death process, also culminating in a moment in which the ultimate nature of reality can be realized. Thus, in the Chandogya Upanishad, we find this description. When, dear one, a person dies, his voice is absorbed into his mind, his mind into his breath, his breath into heat, and heat into formless spirit. That is the real. That is the essence of this whole world. That thou art. In the Jewish Kabbalist tradition, the anonymous author of the Sefer Hazaruf declares that at the moment of death, accomplished Kabbalists attained the essence of all apprehensions, because the interruptions and all the obstacles which are in the world left them, and the intellect returned to cleave to that light which is the divine intellect. According to both the Christian and Islamic cosmologies, if you have led a virtuous life, you will enter into paradise following the world's destruction at the end of time. Now on the face of it, this sounds quite different from the Tibetan, Hindu, and Kabbalist conceptions which insist that the opportunity for gnosis comes immediately after physical death has occurred. But if we read the world's destruction as a mythological description of what an individual experiences during the death process, these accounts are quite compatible. From the point of view of the dying person, the progressive eradication of all phenomena from consciousness will indeed seem like the end of the world. In fact, this is precisely how Tibetan master Kalu Rinpoche describes it. The internal experience for the dying individual is of a great wind sweeping away the whole world, an incredible maelstrom of wind consuming the entire universe. Moreover, according to the early Christian paradigm, although faith may earn you entry into paradise, faith by itself is not sufficient for realizing the eternal life promised by Jesus. Eternal life actually comes through spiritual knowledge, gnosis, for, as St. Augustine pointed out, Jesus did not say, This is eternal life that ye believe in God, but rather, This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Consequently, believers who fail to attain such a vision of God in this life would, according to Augustine, be granted it in the hereafter, and in this way attain salvation. An almost identical view was held by the mystics of Islam. The great Sufi philosopher Al-Ghazali, for example, insisted that upon entering paradise, the true lover of God would receive a vision of the divine countenance, which he affirmed is none other than the gnosis, marifa, already given in an inferior and more fleeting fashion to the saints in this world. Indeed, the link between enlightenment and death goes back to shamanic times, for as the renowned religious historian Mircea Iliad writes, all the ecstatic experiences that determine the future shaman's vocation involve the traditional schema of an initiation ceremony, suffering, death, resurrection. But in order to understand exactly why death should be so universally associated with an opportunity to attain spiritual realization, we must try to get a more precise idea of what actually happens during the death process. 
Because the Tibetans have developed the greatest expertise in simulating death experiences, let us combine what they have to say about the various mental states that are likely to arise with contemporary medical descriptions of what will happen to your physical body as you enter death's gate. The Eight Stages of Death Stage 1. As the hour of death approaches, your body will start to shut down. Usually this begins with a loss of appetite and an inability to take in fluids. It will also become increasingly difficult for you to move your arms and legs. Mentally, you will begin to lose contact with your physical environment and become increasingly drowsy. In this stage, you may also begin having confusing visions or other dreamlike experiences. Stage 2. Your mouth will become dry and you will urinate less frequently. You may have out-of-body experiences, feel like you are entering a tunnel, and feel that you are surrounded by mist or smoke, similar to what many near-death experiencers describe. Stage 3. As your blood circulation slows, you may feel alternately hot, then cold. As time passes, however, your arms and legs will grow cooler and may turn a bluish-gray color. Your vision and hearing will become impaired, and as less oxygen gets to your brain, you may grow confused and restless. It will also become increasingly difficult for you to recognize family members or friends who are present. Internally, you may see sparks, flashing colors, or what looks like patterns of pure energy, which can either be fascinating or frightening, depending on your mental attitude. Stage 4. Your breathing will become irregular with long periods of stillness between breaths. After a while, your breath may resume a more regular pattern, but this will be shallow and mechanical in nature. Eventually, your breath will cease altogether and your heart will stop beating. Inwardly, you may see something like the last sparks of a fire that is about to be extinguished. This, of course, is the moment of actual physical death, but according to the Tibetans, it is not the end of the dying process. There are four more stages which take from five to twenty minutes longer to unfold. Stage 5 In stage 5, your capacity to think conceptually will break down. As conceptions disappear, your mind will become pervaded by a white luminosity or light which the Tibetans describe as being like a clear autumn sky filled with moonlight. They call this the mind of white appearance. Stage 6. In the sixth stage, all traces of aggression and aversion will disappear. As this happens, the white light pervading your mind will be replaced by a red or golden luminosity, which the Tibetans compare to an autumn sky filled with intense sunlight. They call this the mind of red increase. Stage 7 In the seventh stage, attachments and desires will vanish. Now your mind will be empty of all phenomena of any kind, and so appear to be a dark void or nothingness, like an autumn sky without any light whatsoever. This the Tibetans call the mind of black near attainment, which in our terms is literally consciousness without an object. It is here at this stage that the golden opportunity for Gnostic awakening will present itself, 
because, as we have already seen, if you can recognize that consciousness without an object is actually the fundamental clear light of your own mind, then you will have discovered what you really are, consciousness itself. Since there is nothing else in this state besides consciousness itself, what else could you be? It is this discovery of your true identity that awakens you to the eighth stage, which constitutes full enlightenment. Stage 8. This stage is called variously by the Tibetans the attainment clear light, the clear light of bliss, or the fundamental clear light of the nature of the mind. Actually, it is not properly speaking a stage at all, but simply a continuation of the mind of black near attainment, only now recognized to be consciousness itself. And while this consciousness remains momentarily empty of all phenomena, it is not a mere nothingness in the sense of a vacuity. Rather, it is realized to be simultaneously the actual fullness or ultimate reality which contains within itself every possible manifestation and that primordial awareness, like a clear light, which both projects and perceives these manifestations as apparent worlds and beings. This is the realization or gnosis which sets you free from suffering and death forever, because it makes absolutely clear that all your experiences of being a limited, transitory entity, I or self, which could be subject to birth, suffering, and death, have been from the very beginning a delusion. Put differently, you will see that everything is simply a form of your true self or that consciousness which is itself intrinsically free of all things. Why Gnosis is easier to attain at the moment of death Of course it is not necessary to wait for physical death to attain Gnosis. Actually, one may have a Gnostic awakening at any time. This potential exists not only because consciousness is always and everywhere the fundamental ground of all our experience, but also, and more precisely, because the whole cycle of birth and death, including a momentary glimpse of pure consciousness, is repeated with the arising and passing of any phenomenon whatsoever. Thus, according to Bokar Rinpoche, this process of absorption does not occur only at physical death. It also happens in an extremely subtle manner when we fall asleep or when a thought is removed from our mind. Other traditions attest to this fact as well. Listen, for example, to the modern Hindu mystic Ramana Maharshi. The ego in its purity that is, the Atman, or Divine Self, is experienced in the intervals between two states or between two thoughts. Its true nature is known when it is out of contact with objects or thoughts. You should realize this interval as the abiding, unchangeable reality, your true being. Likewise, 14th-century Kabbalist Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom of Barcelona taught that in every transformation of reality, in every change of form, or every time the stature of a thing is altered, the abyss of nothingness is crossed, and for a fleeting mystical moment becomes visible. The reason it is difficult to notice this abyss of nothingness is that, first of all, its appearance is exceedingly brief. 
Secondly, our attention is conditioned to focus only on things, but the abyss of nothingness is not a thing. Consequently, our attention habitually ignores this no thing as it compulsively searches out the next phenomenon to arise. If, however, we can train our attention, via meditation, to remain stable and clear, then all that is required to point to this abyss of nothingness is an ordinary gesture of the most mundane kind. This is why Zen students, for example, who have been ripened through practice, can attain enlightenment simply by seeing a candle being blown out or hearing a bird cry. In the intervals just before and after the arising and passing of these phenomena, consciousness without an object stands for a split second unveiled in all its nakedness. But there are other moments in the course of our lives in which consciousness without an object reveals itself in a more dramatic fashion and for longer periods of time. One of these moments, as Bokar Rinpoche already mentioned, occurs every 24 hours during the transition from waking state to sleep. Here it is not merely a single sound or sight that dies, but the entire waking world. Accordingly, an ancient Hindu text has Shiva advising his consort, Devi, to observe carefully that moment at the point of sleep, when sleep has not yet come, and external wakefulness vanishes, at this point, being is revealed. But again, these instructions are hard to follow because as most of us fall asleep, our minds are completely absorbed in reviewing past events, making future plans, or spinning fantasies, and these mental activities so preoccupy our attention that we fail to recognize consciousness without an object when it appears. Instead, we experience it as a kind of blackout, a state of total unconsciousness, when in fact it is pure consciousness. Finally, consciousness without an object can be experienced by practicing certain meditative techniques which lead to states of samadhi, as they are called in the East, or suspension, as they are called in the West. Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the most influential of Christian mystics, gives this version of the practice. In the diligent exercise of mystical contemplation, leave behind the senses and the operations of the intellect, and all things sensible and intellectual, and all things in the world of being and non-being, that thou mayest arise by unknowing toward the union with him who transcends all being and all knowledge. For by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself and all things, thou mayest be born on high through pure and entire self-abnegation into the super-essential radiance of the divine darkness. There are, however, two problems with this approach. First, attaining states of samadhi usually requires a concerted effort made over a long period of time. Consequently, this technique is usually too difficult to perfect for seekers living a householder's life. The second problem is that states of samadhi almost always generate an overwhelming sense of bliss. As a result, seekers who attain these states without having thoroughly practiced selflessness are in great danger of mistaking this bliss for a genuine Gnostic awakening. When this happens, not only do they miss the point of the practice, which is not to bask in bliss but to attain gnosis, but they fall into one of the worst delusions of all, 
they imagine they have been liberated when they have not. The point is that although opportunities for realization arise in many different situations, attaining it in this life is, as you no doubt know, not so easy. The primary obstacle is that we are constantly distracted by innumerable self-centered thoughts, feelings, sensations, desires, aversions, attachments, etc., all of which seem rooted in nature herself. And this is precisely why death presents such a golden opportunity for attaining what was so hard to attain in life. As the death process unfolds, everything will be reversed. Nature, as the Tibetans say, will actually be cooperating with your practice by progressively removing each and every distraction from your mind until finally there will be nothing left but consciousness itself. All you really have to do is wait for this pure consciousness to appear and then recognize it for what it is. Death will take care of the rest. Here, however, a word of warning is in order. The fact that nature will remove all your distractions at the time of death in no way negates the necessity for practicing in this life. On the contrary, if you do not start preparing for it now, when the hour of your death actually arrives, you will almost certainly be overwhelmed with pain and fear. Under such circumstances, rather than being able to surrender wholeheartedly to death, your impulse will be to resist its operations with all your might. Consequently, when consciousness without an object finally does dawn, instead of recognizing what is actually happening, you will experience nothing but the onset of oblivion. Nor, unfortunately, is oblivion the end of the story as the materialists like to believe. What lies beyond the gate of death? Sooner or later, consciousness will resume its divine play. This is not a problem for one who has attained gnosis, because when phenomena do arise again, they will be automatically recognized simply as forms of consciousness itself, possessing not the slightest reality apart from it. However, for those who remain deluded, the forms consciousness takes following physical death will manifest as those worlds and beings which constitute the heavens and hells described by traditional mythologies. According to the Tibetan paradigm, for example, if you fail to recognize that the mind of black near attainment is actually the fundamental clear light, you will fall into a deep sleep which lasts for three days and then awaken in what is called the intermediate state. In this state, consciousness begins to manifest as various peaceful and wrathful deities. Not recognizing these deities to be projections of your own mind, you will be terrified and try to flee from them. The more you run, however, the more hellish your experiences will become, until at last you take rebirth in one of the six realms which make up cyclic existence, or the world of delusion. Then the whole process of birth and death will repeat itself until you finally become enlightened. The Hindu tradition gives a similar view of what happens after physical death, comparing the soul to a swan circling through endless rounds of birth, death, rebirth, until at last it attains liberation. In Christianity and Islam, of course, there is no concept of rebirth. Exoterically, it is believed that you end up either in heaven or in hell for all eternity. There have been mystics in both traditions, however, 
who have dissented from this orthodox doctrine. The early Christian theologian, Origen, for example, taught that in the end all things, including even the devil, will be restored to God, while the Sufi Sheikh of Sheikhs, Ibn Arabi, wrote that because the Quran tells us that God's mercy precedes his wrath, all creatures must eventually find happiness. In any case, it is axiomatic among mystics the world over that so long as you fail to attain gnosis, whether in this life or the next, you will continue to experience states that will seem pleasant, heavenly, or unpleasant, hellish, according to the spiritual qualities you have cultivated in this life. Thus, Bokar Rinpoche says, Even if we do not believe that hell exists, if we have committed negative deeds, that will cause hell to manifest. Our mind will produce the false appearances causing immense suffering when the time is right. That is what hell is about. And Al-Ghazali writes about those who doubt that unbelievers will be tormented by snakes in the afterlife, as Islamic tradition describes. They do not understand that these snakes have their abode within the unbeliever's spirit, and that they existed in him even before he died, for they were his own evil qualities, symbolized such as jealousy, hatred, hypocrisy, pride, deceit, etc. In other words, in death as in life, it is we ourselves who create our own happiness or suffering. Therefore, in order to avoid suffering and be able to seize the golden opportunity death will present, it is imperative that you start preparing for it now. In the next three chapters, we shall discuss three practices, versions of which are found in most of the great traditions, specifically designed to help you make a smooth passage through death's gate.